millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast comes with a spoiler, strong language, and an explicit content warning. Listener discretion is advised. Destiny has brought me this lamb chop. No listener, my mind hasn't finally snapped like a fragile twig. What you just heard was a direct quote from Ridley Scott's latest masterpiece. The Napoleon movie was controversial before it even hit the cinema. As people began to walk out of it, it became even more so. From telescopes strapped to baker rifles to pig grunting seductions, from firing on the pyramids to being chided into adultery by an overbearing mother, from reframing the Napoleonic Wars as the war for Josephine's genitalia, to depicting Napoleon as an overly emotional and horny teenager, Ridley Scott has produced a film that does a disservice to the history and the humans behind that history. Visually stunning though it unquestionably is, this film seems to be significantly improved if you just turn the volume down and enjoy the feast for the eyes, because it certainly doesn't excite any emotion when you listen to the dialogue. Tonight, experts from across the history, heritage, film and journalism sectors join me to dissect this film and assess whether it has any redeeming features. We consider whether the history really matters. After all, we weren't there, whether we need to get a life rather than deconstruct the dialogue, and should we just foxtrot Oscar rather than flag its inconsistencies? This is The Napoleon Movie, Ridley Scott Reviewed, up next on The Napoleonic Wars Pod. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod where we have just about recovered from the trauma of wasting two and a half hours of our lives on a film which promised much, raised hopes and by all accounts fell catastrophically short. Joining me as we seek to nurse one another through the disappointment are Dr Kit Chapman, science historian, journalist, lecturer and author of Super Heavy, Making and Breaking the Periodic Table and Racing Green, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World. 
Josh Proven, master of the Adventures in Historyland YouTube channel and author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira on the Maratha and Jat campaigns and Every Hazard and Fatigue on the Siege of Pensacola. Charlotte White, no relations, though she is such a podcasting partner in crime that we've taken to calling one another our podcasting spouses, an expert in film history and a passionate devotee of that just cause, that Stuart history is just so much better than Tudor history. And last, but by no means least, Sam Jolly, curator of the Royal Logistic Corps Museum at Worthy Down near Winchester, one of the relatively few Bonapartists to actually be charming and trustee of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. I'm not sure how we managed to do that in one take, but we managed it. We'll go with it. Welcome, everybody. Great to see you. I won't go round the room and ask how you all are, because that would just be a bit weird and awkward, but it is genuinely lovely to see you. You've all been on before. Fantastic to have you back. We'll start with gut reactions when you walked out, or perhaps whilst you were in the cinema, but as you walked out of that cinema, what the heck did your mind do? Because I voice noted some of you and text some of you immediately afterwards um, to say I was perplexed puts it rather mildly. Um, Sam, would you like to start us off on this one? Absolutely, because I'm here to rant, throw a tantrum, flip a table and set fire to things. I came out of that theatre thinking that what I had seen was a nonsensical blur of just random parts of his life that made no sense. It is a really, really impressive feat to make a man who is one of the most interesting characters in history from one of the most interesting periods and conflicts of history and make it that dull. It was like someone had read a Wikipedia page on Napoleon, then drunk a load of wine, eaten a load of cheese, went to bed and then written a film out of their cheese dream about Napoleon rather than about anything they'd actually read. And I was fully, fully prepared to put aside all the historical inaccuracies. I am more than willing to watch something that's not accurate if it's a good film. And it just wasn't. I mean, you can't be more emphatic than that so I'm gonna guess that that sort of I wasn't a fan um kind of vibe that we're getting there from Sam Kit your reaction was a bit different wasn't it uh it was so I, I sat down and for the first 20 minutes I'm like okay this is this is chugging along and then in the in the oh there was a few people in the in the cinema with me and we started getting this little little bouts of nervous laughter as we were watching it and we realized that the film was just it was ridiculous and so ridiculous it was funny and that little giggle started becoming raucous laughter we were bursting out laughing at every scene pretty much uh, whether it's the horrible pig sex thing uh, whether it's the random drama of of the Tsar of Russia turning up for Nookie at Josephine's house um, to some of the awful battles. Um, <laughs> Napoleon one-shotting the uh, <laughs> the uh, the general of the Ottoman army by hitting a ricochet off the pyramids. I mean, that was just... Um, we were just laughing. And it's almost like someone uh, got 200 million and, and lavished it with, you know, costumes and set design, etc. Uh, hired Ridley Scott, and they made a carry-on film. It's the only way you can watch this. It's it's hilarious. I think in places it strays into the if you don't laugh, you will just have to have a nervous breakdown because it, it elicits tears almost. There are points where it's genuinely painful, I found. The I'm going to whine like a dog 
until my wife decides to give me some was was one of those moments where I don't I'm not one for walking out of cinemas but if I hadn't been paid to do a review of the movie I might just have walked out at that point because you just go this is this is bonkers there's there's so many bits that are bonkers and there's so many bits that are some bits are clearly intentionally funny I mean there's supposed to be awkwardness uh, around the around the sex scenes but the fact that they're pulling away um when he does the the coup and there's a man demanding that he finishes succulent meal I just go a succulent Chinese meal there is no way that that was done by accident um and yet there's just so much hammy awkwardness so much pointlessness the other thing is um I'm coming through it as a, a I'm not a Napoleonic historian um I'm a science historian I'm here predominantly because I, I work at Falmouth University on the creative writing and I can tell you a little bit about script design but um as someone who knows roughly enough about the Napoleonic Wars to get by, there were so many things that I was like, that can't be how it really happened, can it? Um, and I, you know, I have been to Waterloo. I don't remember there being like earthworks and redoubts and all that kind of stuff. So I can only imagine what the rest of you were going through. Yeah, but Kit, you weren't there. So apparently you you just need to shut up like all the rest of us. Um Charlie, let me bring you in as somebody who's steeped in film history. Right. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel that Phoenix and Kirby were sort of, um, um, oh, who is it? It's Burton and... Burton and Taylor. Thank you, Burton and Taylor. I, I wasn't getting that vibe from... I mean, from look, this portrayal. is the film that we deserved, wasn't it? The, the Burton and Taylor as Napoleon and Josephine, that that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted to see. And, you know, no shade to the performers because they can only perform the script they're given. Uh, that's par for the course. Though apparently Joaquin Phoenix did a lot of improv and you'll be pleased to know the pig sex was his idea. And uh, he just did that and they filmed it and they thought it was hilarious and they left it in. This film should have been better just for the amount of money and talent thrown at it. Um, I'm sure we'll get on to, to things like the costuming later because it really it's it needs to be talked about for the amount of money and work that went into it. But I just felt that it lacked any cohesive narrative or really any arc. Uh, it was just a series of really beautiful vignettes. And, and again, coming at this as someone who is not not a historian of this time at all, I'm able to look past a lot of. I don't know if they really had a big battle on some ice, but it looked cool. Uh, so bits of it looked amazing, but it's just, I'm really sad. I wish I could be the the voice of reason and sort of the, the dissenting person here. I think that everyone should see it on a big screen if they're going to ever watch it at all, because that's the only place it has any, any kind of redeeming. But take a snack have a wee beforehand and wear a really big jumper because the cinema was cold. Sound advice there. Sound advice. For me, the thing that, uh, if, if anything makes me angry about this film, it's not actually the historical inaccuracies because sure, I've said on a few occasions, it's easier to list the historical accuracies and the inaccuracies because there are so many, but yes, it is cinema. Nobody was expecting it to be a bloody documentary. Of course they weren't. But Wherever you stand on the spectrum of opinion about Napoleon, whether you love the guy, whether you loathe him, whether you think he was the dog's bollocks or whether you think he was the devil incarnate, one way or another, 
his story, his actions, the period around him, the relationship with Josephine, it does one thing. It excites emotion. Where was the passion? Where was that sense when you walked out of, of that cinema that you either wanted to, I don't know, storm the Allied Ridge at Waterloo, which is probably what Sam was hoping for um, at the end of that? Where's the sense that you want to kind of boo and hiss whacking Phoenix if you see him in the street because he's encapsulated the darker side of Napoleon's character? Where's that sense of trauma and loss of a relationship as volatile and as as intense as the one between Napoleon and Josephine? There was none of that. How the hell do you take, as Sam said it, Sam said it perfectly, and we were discussing this afterwards, weren't we, that how do you take such good material and just leave everybody cold at the end of it? If the best we can do is laugh at the damn thing unintentionally because it was never, you know, designed as a comedy, then it's it's catastrophic. And we will get to this later. Ridley Scott can do better. He can do infinitely better. And we will get to that in due course. But Josh, I do... Not necessarily within a historical context, uh, as Kit grimaces rightly about when it comes to historical films. Yes, he has form um, in terms of getting it wrong. But all I'll say at this stage is The Martian. I rate The Martian. Um, and Kit and I have had conversations off air about it. So we're going to bring that into the fold in due course. But Josh, I want to give you the chance to give me your reactions. You posted probably the most peeved um, a picture of you in the in the most peeved state I've ever seen you, and it takes a lot to hack you off. Yeah, I've, I've built a I've built a reputation about not being terribly bothered about things and being fairly mild about stuff. Um, but much much like your good self, I wouldn't have watched it if I didn't know people were expecting me to talk about it online afterwards. Um, my first reaction which grew from a, a little like Kit shortly after the first act, I think, um, was, was that it was bad. Just, just to put it bluntly, was that I, di I didn't find it an enjoyable experience uh, at the, to watch, really. It was, it was quite difficult to watch, probably because I didn't like Kit go to it, you know, and and immediately switch it so I very sensibly switch at a certain point to just viewing it as a cacophony of hilarious errors or you know just laugh at it um i came out of the place and i i <laughs> i didn't know what to think of it I, I my brain seemed to have shut down and um i i just wandered around the 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 shopping center where i watched the movie <laughs> trying to figure out what I had just seen, as opposed to what the trailers suggested I was going to see. And I hadn't been I hadn't been massively confident from the trailers to begin with. I knew there was going to be problems with it, and but I didn't think that the problems I was going to witness were the problems that I found. I actually thought it was going to be bad in different ways. It's actually bad in ways you just are not prepared for. <laughs> I, I now have visions of Josh wandering like a lost child searching for his mother um, through the, the shopping centre of wherever it is that you live, um, just desperately searching for 
some hope within the cinematic universe that has been cruelly plucked away from you um, over the course of your experience in that cinema. Um, yeah, I, I think we're we're all kind of of a similar mind that there was that sense of that wasn't what was uh, trailers always sex up a movie the trailer is in my experience generally better than the movie itself personal opinion you're welcome to disagree with me on that um and you're dead right we we foresaw issues that ended up not being issues because there were far more fundamental problems with this damn thing let's start to talk about specifics um i want to particularly talk about this from an entertainment angle and it's important to start with this because i don't want to just go oh let's list all of the historical problems with it this is there to entertain. And I think fundamentally our problem is that this didn't deliver in the way that it should have delivered. And I wanna try and dissect that. So let me try and be nice about this. Does it work as entertainment? Let's ask an open question rather than automatically assuming that this was absolute crap and um, was utterly irredeemable. Does it work as entertainment? And I will come in with one example of where they got this right. And it's the scene of Napoleon's return from Elba, where he stopped by officers, uh, by soldiers of the 5th Regiment. And in that moment, you see everything that this film could have been. Because it's only maybe 90 seconds at most, but you've got Joaquin Phoenix, tears in his eyes, on foot, beseeching the soldiers to, to join him. He turns around and says, I am melancholy for my home, and for our victories together, will you join me? And in that moment, I, me, the person who is quite vocal about the fact that they don't like Napoleon, I felt pity. That touched me deep in my ice cold soul. And if it can do that to me, this film had the potential to be a myriad of those moments. You had the, the core material, the raw talent, it could have been so much more. And that is an indication for me of how this film could have touched so many nerves, so many emotions and done so much more. And then it would have been a powerful form of entertainment. It would have been a roller coaster ride. And going through Napoleon's story should be a roller coaster ride. That's kind of what we signed up for when we bought the ticket. Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know. But for me, that's what I was expecting. And it didn't deliver that. So for me, it did not entertain. Charlie, film expert, <laughs> help me out. Okay, well, look, I mean, Ridley Scott set himself a bit of an impossible challenge by trying to do everything inside of a feature film length. And he it was a chunky, what, two and a half hours? It's, that's that's numb-bum territory. But we're used to Netflix and Prime and all of our streamers, uh, we could have had a runtime of upwards of six hours on this quite happily. And we would have enjoyed it at home and we would have got his whole life. I think it's really interesting that you picked that particular moment because I found myself thinking about, about that conundrum and about how you tell a person's story when they've got a lot of life and a lot of stuff that goes on and a lot of um, quote unquote fans and a lot of people who've spent a lot of time studying them. Um, you are never going to please this audience. So if I'd been, if I'd been making this film, I would have found it really interesting as a character study of a man who has, has acquired power 
and who loses it and who then gets it back. So I would have started off that story um, on Idris Elba and um, his time there with that wonderful actor who I understand he spent some time with. You know, they sent him away into exile with Idris Elba, which actually I think sounds quite nice. I don't have a problem with this, but it would be a story about how he how he comes back. And that moment where he's he's faced by troops, are they going to shoot him and are they going to stay loyal to their their masters or to their former their former uh, leader? It's a wonderful moment. In fact, if somebody could make a film about maybe, I don't know, like a king who loses his throne and goes away and sort of bums around Europe for 11 years and then comes back in triumph. I would love to watch that film, <laughs> Charles II. But that would have been a choice. That would have been a, a bit of Napoleon's life and he could have really drilled down into the characters. And this is where Ridley Scott misses the point. We see some beautiful moments when he recreates the coronation from the painting. That, my little nerdy heart looked at that shot and just went so beautiful but did I give a shit no they could have they could have all been vaporized by aliens and I would not have cared about any of those people and you're right they we should have been we should have been crying we should you know we should have felt something um but that wasn't that wasn't the point to Ridley Scott and David David Sharma the writer I think someone's gonna put me right they weren't the point the big set pieces were the point. Look at this. Look at what we can do. Look at the scenery. Look at these costumes. Look at this amazing stuff. Scarpa, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, that that was where they where they put their attention rather than on the smaller. I'd like to have seen it on a micro level. Sam, I want to come straight over to you. Um, I think you're probably the most pro Napoleon of the individuals in the room this evening. Were there other redeeming features on an emotional level for you? Were there moments where you saw the potential that perhaps somebody who's a bit ice cold about Napoleon like me might have, have missed it? Was, was there anything that made you kind of go, vive l'empereur? I think a huge problem and why a lot of people then can't connect with it emotionally is because everything is, every scene is too short. You are never, and this might be an issue that's then dealt with in, in the four-hour director's cut, which which we'll eventually get. Um, but if a scene isn't long enough for you to connect with the characters, and if you don't know who half of these characters are as well, because they haven't been set up, they've got no names, Not like none of the marshals have a name. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of line up behind Napoleon at times, like some kind of like martial mafia with no name, just in an intimidating row. Um, and you can tell one might be Davu because it had some glasses that look like they've walked out of a Victorian steampunk. It's very confusing. But the point is, without without scene lengths and without being able to connect to these characters and connect to people, you've got no way of emotionally connecting with them. So you you have no idea why people want to follow Napoleon because you're not actually connecting with the people who are trying to follow Napoleon. And, and, and these, these martial characters that are sort of loitering around, sometimes they might say something... It's almost like they're meant to be the voice of reason every time Napoleon's making a bad decision. And according to the film, every decision he ever seems to make is bad because there's always a marshal going, well, maybe we should do this. And he goes, no, I'm going to do this. And then it all goes wrong. So <laughs> without knowing who these people are, why do we care? People connect to people stories. They don't connect to voidless, voidless, uh, sort of like nameless voids just surrounding one man. 
it is it is the story of Napoleon and Josephine, absolutely. But they don't they didn't live in a vacuum. I think that's really nicely put. Um, one of the the big rants and something that I think we will come on to in due course is that lack of character development. Partly, I feel with Napoleon and Josephine, actually, but particularly with the supporting cast. The supporting cast almost pointless. Um, her daughter and her son as adults do not have names. Even when Hortense is telling Napoleon that her mother is dead, you just, no one has a fucking clue who Hortense is unless you know that that's likely going to be Hortense because she happens to be with her mother when she dies. How He had to put that in there. He had to say, oh, and your mother, by the way, it's so clunky. It makes no sense. It's a problem. I think we're going to dwell on that little rabbit hole in, in due course because it, it needs it needs exploring. Um, and I feel that almost every, perhaps with the exception of Josephine, every character in that film is a caricature. And even then you could debate whether or not... I. I We'll get to quite how Josephine is is portrayed, but uh, of the redeeming features in there, I would say Vanessa Kirby's portrayal is one of the few that exists. Um, but even then, I think there could have been so much more done with that. But we'll, we will get to that. Kit, you're somebody who understands script writing. You've, hell, you've written computer games. So you understand that process of putting together a story, getting people invested, making them want to keep coming back for more because you've got a bigger challenge, actually. People play the game, they get to a certain point, they stop and save and you've got to make them want to come back rather than, you know, just not walk out the cinema. So what worked and, and what failed when it came to this for you? I, I think one of the things we've got to recognise is that Napoleon's life, however way you cut it, is so epic and has so many different aspects to it that you kind of have to pick which thread you're going for because otherwise your storytelling is going to be all over the shop. And that's true of any biopic. You've really got to, when we look at a, a story traditionally, we're looking at your basic three act structure, right? And for, for anyone who doesn't know, you have the setup, you have the confrontation, you have the resolution thereof. Um, the problem with Napoleon's life is it does, and any of our lives is it doesn't neatly fit that structure. So you've almost got to work out how you're actually going to reframe things. What are you going to focus on? What are you going to pick? Um, and what he's done is he's kind of picked a greatest hits album. Um, and that's the best way I can describe it. If you, if you think of it in screen screenwriting terms, is that if you listen to any of the great albums, you know, Sergeant Peppers, whatever, there is a structure in that album that leads you from song to song to song. If you pick the Beatles' greatest hits, that doesn't exist because it's all just the little bits you know, and it's kind of jumbled up. And so you do you don't have this this lack of uh, sorry you don't have this character development that we talked about, which is so critical. Um, you have essentially two named characters. I think um, I was trying to think of who the who the next character down is, and it's probably like someone like um, you know Paul Barrar or, or, or is it Cullencore, the, um, the 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 diplomat. Of all the people I could name in associated with Napoleon, they wouldn't have been the first couple. You're then introducing this character of the Duke of Wellington for the last sort of 20 minutes or so, which is such an over-the-top and ridiculous performance. 
but your villain, your antagonist, your opponent only emerges in the last 20 minutes. And all the other stuff you've built up is kind of like all that confrontation we've been speaking about has just kind of gone to the wayside. Um, every time he overcomes an obstacle, um, there's something else that that occurs, which means that the triumph, the resolution that you're hoping for falls flat. Um, and again, it's played for comedy. Now, in Napoleon's life, of course, that did happen. There were situations, you know, he marched onto onto Moscow and um, and he, he got to Moscow and, the, and it was in flames, all that kind of stuff. It's far more complicated than that, as I know you've talked about extensively. You've talked about you know, the fact that there's disease in the columns. Not everyone was wiped out in, in the retreat, etc. Um, but because you're narrowing it down to those, you're trying to find those beats. What you've ended up doing is you've just created a hodgepodge where you're not hitting any of them. Josh, let me bring you in in response to this. Uh, in terms of entertainment, uh, I, I really wasn't entertained by it at all. Um, historically, it's a joke. Like the history, there's no point in talking about it in terms of history. You can only really talk about it as whether it was entertaining or not. And it has deep issues in terms of its script and its sort of vision. What, what indeed are you trying to say? about Napoleon in this movie. This is a piece of art. This is a creative thing. What do we want to say about Napoleon? Are we telling the story of the general? Are we going to tell the story of the statesman? Are we going to tell the story of the lover? It's, and to be honest with you, I would have had great respect for this movie if Ridley Scott had actually not shown us the general, but shown us the statesman. I would not care if we never saw a battlefield, because frankly, he treated war as shock value. It doesn't make you think, doesn't make you see how horrible it is, doesn't make you see the challenge of the soldiers. It's might as well not have been there for all it tells you about Napoleon. Because battle scenes in what is objectively possibly meant to be a war movie, like it, it could have been a war movie, but it wasn't. Like it says, it was trying to be everything. And there are rules about that in cinema. Um, I don't think I can say it's particularly entertaining. I, I come from obviously I come from a place of bias because I'm as I'm watching the movie, I can't quite shut off my brain from seeing where it could have gone, where I would have liked it to have gone. Because I'm also slightly of the opinion, maybe this is insane, but it's it's not really a question of oh, his life is so big, how can I do this? His life is so big, how can I miss? Basically. You can, with a life that big, take what you want to make the story, and yes, we'll criticize you for it, but I would respect the creative process. Um, and by the end, presumably, we would know more about Napoleon than just, he did everything for Josephine. Because that's all I got out of this movie. I think that's one of the most insidious things about the entire movie, the way in which everything is about Josephine. And and this will surprise people that it's coming from me. But you do a disservice to Napoleon, his complexity, his drive, his skill, his unquestionable talent. All of the positive and some of the negative aspects of his character are stripped away from him because, what, he's blinded by love? Is this a guy who's never met a girl in his entire life? Is Napoleon a 13-year-old I... boy? I don't even know why Josephine loves him. No, it's a good point. Okay, 
give I, I know kind of why Napoleon loves Josephine, fairly obvious to be honest, but um that why on earth does she need him? Because Apart they from... sat awkwardly in a cafe together, silently yes. watching people. That's how you fall in love, guys. You sit That's next the... to each other in no, a cafe. No, you fall in love by saying, if you look down, you'll see a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's my the... goodness. There's so many, there's so many wonderful um, edits of that coming up. I'm just, I want all the people with too much time on their hands, uh, please, to edit in what she shows him under her skirt. Once you've seen this, you'll always want it. And it's like, I don't know, like a Reese's peanut butter cup. I mean, I have one. Yes. I can't stop eating them. So, I mean, there's a very obvious option in there, which is to just add an editor cat in there <laughs> yes. no, I think it's going to be a, 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 a picture of your podcast Zach that's going to be like yeah. a new advertising I mean <laughs> seriously we're, we're all dying with laughter at the... <laughs> the the whole thing is is, is preposterous um, and, and you know Josh just picks up on some really good points there is no mention of the code Napoleon for example in the entire movie which is kind of you know a big deal there's, for France there's two um, things he's known for the army and the code you <laughs> get neither <laughs> You don't, and uh, it's the, the one thing is again. This is coming from someone who isn't an expert in the in the area, um, but uh, you get the impression that the entire Napoleonic Wars are all down to him. Like the only reason France is fighting is because of Napoleon, which kind of I you know I understand it's ridiculous. Um, but my favourite line, uh, just seeing as we've brought up lines, it's got to be the the epic. You only think you're great because you've got boats, like boats. <laughs> But it's oh, true. It's funny because it's true. And we all need that on a T-shirt, please. We do. There's a merchandise idea right there, if I could find the time. Um, it just, it just so, it, it like encapsulates all that's good and bad about that performance. He's so hurt by the fact that the British won't listen to him that he can't think of a coherent sentence that he just comes out with the most childish... Mm. He doesn't even he even does a little stomp before he walks away. <laughs> so come coming in as a non-expert, I've got to ask, was Napoleon famous for his bad manners and ineloquence? Which is a theme that recurs repeatedly throughout that movie. It is a little known fact of the Napoleonic Wars that the only reason Britain was willing <laughs> to consistently fight Napoleon is because he served red wine with the fish course and didn't know which knife to use when it came to different courses at dinner that's all it was it was all about I love his the... egotism and his lack of simple good manners which <laughs> no, frankly the... is how ever it plays it sorry say that again sam it's because he wears hats at parties oh outrageous no in the treaty, treaty of tilsit right that is just uh him and his bro alexander talking about how fit alexander's sisters are that's yes. the whole thing yeah that's all there is right nothing else nothing to do with trade Nothing to do with the continental system, nothing to do with international relations, nothing to do with, I don't know, significant battles like Friedland. Nothing to do I mean, with the fact that Tsar's army had just been slaughtered like the week before. And the <laughs> Prussians, who, who even are the Prussians? Because no, they, they are, literally don't get a look in. There are, no, there are no Germans in this movie. There's, Germany is not in this movie. Oh, and fun fact, as another, just, I know that, Maybe some French people are not happy about this film either. There's one French actor in this film, and he plays the Tsar of Russia. I know. I, 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 
I believe there was a, uh, there is another French actor, although you can't really tell because I think he puts on an accent. It's the guy who plays Barra is apparently That's French. Already, yeah. But no, the 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 czar. I was thinking earlier when Kit was wondering who the next significant character is, and it's probably the czar, to be honest. But yeah, he's French. Um, it's very uh, and and it's a good that you brought this up because the French have been like everybody else slapped in the face by Ridley Scott for complaining about the movie. It's not a very French movie. Um, it, it, if you're going to make a movie about Napoleon, you need to remember that it's not Anglophone history, really. It's French history. And this, there's a lot, there, there are many better French movies <laughs> that you can watch about French history to, to be honest, and I I completely agree, to be honest, with most of the French reviewers that I've seen. Um, it's borderline insulting. <laughs> uh, and um, the... Yeah, no, it's, it's sort of... It's just borderline insulting. Everything they make them do, all the French people in it are acting sort of the way British people think, you know, what they, they should act. And like I said before, I'm deeply conflicted by this movie because I'm a bit more of a Bonapartist than Zach is, but I'm not his biggest fan either. And I do believe this comes close to character assassination. I mean, being more of a Bonapartist than me really isn't saying much, Josh. We we all know that that's the case. But I, I've made this point, actually. I wasn't even aware I was being quoted in The Guardian. I think that what they did is they went and watched some stupid review I did of the trailer. And the point that I made, I didn't even remember making it, but it's it's I think it's true is that this film is kind of anti-British propaganda. Sorry, and British anti-Napoleon propaganda is what I'm trying to say, turned into film. There is too much almost kind of Gilray-esque depiction in there. Um, we can get to the the height gags, which get laced in there in a couple of times, and, and Sam pulls a face like she's going to be sick. Um, it, it's, it's sloppy. But Sam, there was another point that you wanted to make in relation to... Um, the analogy Kit made about um, albums. I really liked Kit's analogy that it was like a greatest hits album of Napoleon's life. My only point is that it's like a greatest hits album where they only really chose the number two hits and ignored all the number one hits. I mean, the biggest example is the first Italian campaign. I, one of One of my criticisms of the film, and I know many other people have said this as well, is that when Napoleon rises to power, you have absolutely no idea in the theatrical version why. You have no idea why he's risen to power, why anyone cares, why anyone supports him, why anyone wants him to, why he's popular with the soldiers. Um, and the, 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 the first Italian campaign is the why. <laughs> it's like his, it's his golden moment. It's, 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 um, what, Zach, do you normally call it his Rod Stewart moment or something on, on the Bridge of Arkla? It absolutely. has so so many shiny battles where he is churning out that propaganda machine. Some of the one of the best paintings of him ever is him on the bridge of Arkla holding the flag, like in with the wind in his hair as he's making the charge. And that in itself is massive fabrication. So actually, uh, Ridley Scott would have loved it because it's a pack of lies in the painting. Would it, wouldn't it have been just beautiful though if they had given us like some sort of slightly disjointed narrative where you see what actually happened where someone pushes him into a ditch 
and then you see the the the, the painting or something like that wouldn't that have just been such nice symmetry <laughs> exactly exactly especially given the amount of time that was wasted in the film when every when my other main criticism was that every scene is too short and then one of the few scenes that is longer than a couple of seconds is him fondling a mummy and putting his hat on the sarcophagus like in the painting it brings nothing but a bit of failed symbolism of like oh i am like this mummy i will stand the test of time it it it's such a waste of time and all, that entire like minute could have been spent doing something about the italian campaign even if it had been like a sudden flash even if it had been like a little montage of victory 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 bam painting then to egypt that would have worked and maybe Maybe, again, maybe that will be in the longer version. I don't know. But the other battle that wasn't included that was that would have been part of like a number one's greatest hits is Marengo. And what makes me, what makes this laugh, makes me laugh even more here is the fact that I, I do a little bit of supporting artist work on the side and the working title for Napoleon was called Marengo. That was the code name for any extras who got a job on that shit. It was called Marengo. So it's literally called fucking Marengo and there's no fucking battle of Marengo. I mean, they got the horse Marengo in there. We wouldn't know if they didn't put any titles across the screen when the horse came on. His name's Marengo. <laughs> he was a horse, bro. Um, well, if Luke Reynolds was here, he would say that Marengo isn't even a Napoleon horse anyway, that it's all a fabrication that the British did. <laughs> it on display because they wanted a trophy but that's a story for another time <laughs> yeah i mean with with the sort of problems with the whole structure of it as kit will know in the opening scenes he's meant to save a cat not like molest a horse what was yeah, that I mean, that was really kind of odd that sort of you know just gripping into the horse and getting the ball and tossing it you go oh there you go there's my mum his whole spy t- tactic as well which is basically oh. becoming, <laughs> becoming a stick seller and just roaming sticks that are around Europe and spying on people. Or, or, or Napoleon, the emperor of the French, sort of, who will buy my sticks? I mean, that was just cringeworthy. Um, yeah, he's totally doing cavalry charges, doing Assassin's Creed stuff. It's ridiculous. Well, that's it. He almost got, you know, scoped by by a sniper while he's in the middle of, a, of the Battle of Waterloo, fighting hand-to-hand combat in the, you know, the March of the Guard. Um, and this is, again, you know, it's it's madness. We will that return to that bloody sniper rifle in due course. Um, but I want to talk about something that we we touched on a little bit um, back along. But I think it is a big problem in this movie. The lack of character development. Mm. And, and also, I can't pretend that I'm I'm good on plot devices within films. But every character is meant to have an arc, are they not? And the protagonist. And I don't really feel that arc. And, and granted, okay, you can make the point, well, look, you're tied to Napoleon's life story, but there were ways to do this smarter. Um, and, and Josh, I think you possibly mentioned this in some of the the pre-reaction stuff that you did. There was perhaps this indication that they might have done the entire film in hindsight. You know, that would have been an arc. Instead, it's sort of this guy Napoleon pitches up, then he goes and does some things. Nobody really knows why anyone cares. Sam makes the point, why the hell would you follow this guy? And millions of people did. You're completely clueless. But there's also this problem that the supporting characters, I feel, don't really get much of an arc. Um, With Josephine, you've kind of got this sense of, 
well, sometimes she's hot for Napoleon, but initially she's not. Then she decides that actually she doesn't want to be chucked out in the rain, so she begs him to stay. She takes a whole load of crap for the fact that she had an affair, but then she turns around and asks Napoleon in literally the same goddamn scene, did you have mistresses? And he goes, yes. And she's like, oh, okay, I don't really care about that. And and then later on, like Kit said, there's the canoodling with Tsar Alexander, and you just kind of go, what? Because before that, you the what's the previous scene with Josephine? It's her holding Napoleon's baby, going, you've got no idea what I've given up for you. There's no, there's no fluidity. There's no sense of journey. It's just a series of quantum leaps between different points. I could rant about the Wellington depiction until the end of time, but I'm going to leave that to Josh because that is Josh's bag. Um, And it's got nothing to do with the fact that it's a crap portrayal of Wellington and everything to do with the fact that it's just a crap portrayal of a person. Here, do you want to start off on this? Yes, I do. And and I think that we should remember that Napoleon was uh, married more than once. Although (laughs) I should probably bring this up because his... His poor second wife has one scene where she turns up and he was like, how was your trip? Uh, yeah, it was okay. Would you like to go to the bedroom and do some bickety bam bams? I mean, that was all she was there for. Um, so yeah, the character development is terrible. Um, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I forgot entirely that the old lady who was telling him he couldn't get it up was his mother, um, which because she was so isolated from the film Um this is the problem again. We, we, there are so many characters you could bring in, and rather than focusing on a couple throughout who are occurring throughout Napoleon's life, which you could do as a central cast, we, we don't do that. We jump from one to another to another. You then suddenly end up. I'm pretty certain that Waterloo is supposed to be Marshal Ney, right? Just shouting and like a like a crazy person. Um, he's not introduced, and there's no setup. I mean, Josh mentioned this earlier. There's, the, the marshals are all interchangeable. Um, so there is this lack of character development. Um, the big problem I've got is that the character development you have and the way that they are, if they, we tries to say that they're in love, is epistolary. So it's reading out the love letters of Napoleon. Now, I'm pretty certain that those are verbatim the love letters. I mean, he was just this really weird, horny guy. Um, or, you know, that's fair. But it's like, why aren't you writing me back? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in Egypt having a little fondle about you. Um, we get a little bit of the to and fro between them, but we only really see Josephine's part right at the end after she's died. <laughs> so we don't have, the only characterization and character development that Josephine has is literally after her death, when it's too late to have any kind of conflict resolution. Um, so everything just feels empty and devoid um the other thing that we've got really going on with napoleon in particular is the this idea of of characters not through um not through a personality but through through ticks and traits is the best way of putting it so joaquin phoenix um he's a very competent actor in in some respects but i think one of his big flaws is that he tries to find a character by giving them giving them a little quirky thing to do um, you know, you saw this in Joker, you saw this in Commodus, in, in Gladiator. Of course, that's another Ridley Scott movie. Um, and in Napoleon, it's this weird stomping of his feet like a five-year-old boy and making pig fart noises, um, which, I mean, it's a direction, sure. 
But it's, again, as we've mentioned, this idea of why is the army following him? He is completely void of charisma. And yet everyone's saying you're the one that should be king. Why? You know, the only part where he tries to take command of something, um, of course, is is the coup, where he he literally (laughs) always gets killed, skids out, and has this little weird comedy skit with his brother about bringing in the army. Um, It's just just farcical. The closest thing I I can think of um, and I certainly don't want to bring this 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 parallel too often, but I think it fits in this case, is if you've seen the producers um, and how they represent um, re- represent uh, Adolf Hitler in the producers, this kind of over-the-top camp performance, it's, it's almost like doing that. So I'm wondering now if Ridley Scott has is, is got some kind of, lots of old ladies have donated the 200 million to him, and this is all some sort of big big wheeze on his part there is food for thought for everybody um sam i want to you were the sort of the instigation for a, a lot of our, our ranting about this the, the absence of the marshals particularly is is a problem um how would you have done it differently because this is and i'm trying i'm trying desperately to play devil's advocate here in in order to be a at least make this not a, a hit job on the movie, but is it feasible to have done this differently? For me, the the very obvious omissions are Davu and Bertier. Um, you needed them to to be significant. Um, some kind of sense of who the hell Fouché was in the grand scheme of Napoleon's life might have been nice. Um, we've talked about the the absence almost of napoleon's second wife other than sort of did you have a nice trip here were some flowers right shall we get on with it um how would you have tried to do this differently in order to tell any aspect of this story more effectively i i mean the, the most obvious thing to me would have been to either make it two films or a trilogy if you make it two films make one the rise of napoleon up until the coronation uh, and I'm going to be very ageist here with a younger actor playing him in his 20s and early 30s. And then a second film with with Joaquin Phoenix as um, like 1804 onwards to Waterloo. That would have been the obvious structural choice, which would have then given you the potential to have that story arc as well that, that Kit was saying earlier. It would have been much easier to have a story arc. And the, the end goal of the first game is getting him to power. The end goal of the second game, uh, second game, game <laughs> second film is um is the coalitions bringing him down and I'm, i was so disappointed about the lack of, of marshals apart from devu and his weird steampunk glasses because and and nay just randomly shouting into the breach but um i'm 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 very sad selfishly i my favorite is john lan and he doesn't even have an actor he's not even he's not even a background marshal he just doesn't exist uh and then also i'm so disappointed that we don't get to see uh, uh, a Murat bouncing around with his majestic hair, just going Murat, da, 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 just everywhere. I feel like that would have just maybe it would have maybe it would have competed with uh, the the comedy of Napoleon. There's only room for one strange character in the center, and that is Napoleon. I think that was probably just a, a purely a financial thing, though, because you would blow the entire movie's budget on ostrich feathers if you cast a Murat. There, there are no two ways about it. Um, and there's not enough hairspray, obviously, in the budget either. Oh, you'd wreck the ozone layer right there. 
you know, we'd we'd be in like international crises. Summits would have to be called. It, it couldn't be done. And um, then also, if you had Marat, you would have you'd, you'd have had to have given Napoleon's sisters voices. And oh my God, no, the the sisters couldn't possibly have names. Give women voices in a film in twenty twenty three? What are you? That's madness. Exactly. Bad enough that you've got to have Josephine in there. Genuinely, talking about character arcs and developments, I feel like the one character that probably had, apart from Napoleon, the most kind of emotion and emotional arc, and he actually understood in the whole film, weirdly, was actually Hippolyte Charles, who Josephine had the affair with, because you've got three very clear states. You've got, yeah, I'm getting laid. You've got bouncing down the stairs. I'm really happy. And then you've got at the coronation. No, she is not with me anymore. That, and that is the that is the biggest arc you get for a character, actually, in the whole film is, is Hippolyte Charles. So, so that wasn't Flashman, because that's who I thought that guy was. No, no. Flashman was, uh, was actually Ney. Yeah. <laughs> Monsieur Le Marchal Flashman. <laughs> Josh, tea and biscuits Wellington. It's it's a phrase that you coined and it's it, it hits the nail on the head, right, in terms of the problems with so many of these characters. It is a caricature. I was the the scowl was so affected the entire way through the Waterloo scene. It's it's one of those moments where you genuinely think the wind has changed and that thing that your mum told you all the way through your childhood about, oh, when you pull a face like that and the wind will change and you'll be stuck like that. Genuinely, that's kind of what it felt like, that somebody had just sort of painted this sort of... Um, with a Nigel Farage voice thrown in for good measure, because why the hell not? Just give us a sense of how you might have been able to... Anybody might have been able to do something fractionally better. Or was it necessary? Did you need a caricatured Wellington to make people get it in terms of look these are some people who are bad guys and you need to not like them was it a necessary plot device life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. No, no, I don't think so. I said this in some of the videos that I did before the, before I saw the movie, and I think uh, I said it on, possibly, uh, the live we did, that, as much as I am a Wellington fan, I, I enjoy reading about his life and everything like that. Um, he shouldn't have had as much of an impact on the movie as he did. I was afraid they were going to do this. I was afraid they were going to make it pr pr primarily, I hate the British sort of thing, and that they were going to give Waddington too much time in a Napoleon movie, which is strange to say because 
But at the same time, it isn't because the movie relies a lot on a, on a great deal of old myths. Not even the myths of Napoleon's greatness that have risen up since uh, the fall of the Second Empire or whatever. Uh, but the myths that came before that, the myths about why he left Egypt, the myths about who won Waterloo, and how much he actually cared about the Duke of Wellington. He wasn't saluting him across the field or anything like that. Um, he had no time for Wellington, really, as is proven by his behavior towards the marshals who were fighting in Spain. He didn't rate him. He didn't understand what they were, they were up against. <sighs> now, I do have to admit that I currently don't have a great idea as to how you put Wellington in this movie, except perhaps to take a leaf out of Master and Commander's book where you don't see the enemy. Wellington is a mystery to Napoleon. Napoleon doesn't understand Wellington. He, no, he doesn't listen to the generals who tell him about Wellington. If anything, you should learn about Wellington through the generals who fought him. He should have had, there should have been some sort of Waterloo discussion prior to the battle to let you know what's happening. And Foire should have been up, and Ney should have been up saying, this is how you fight this guy, right? And Napoleon's like, nothing. They only have boats. Um, and I think actually the way you do Wellington in a Napoleon movie is to make him the mysterious enemy. He should you should give more time to Blucher in a Napoleon movie because he knows about Blucher. He's fought Blucher before. He knows how to defeat the Prussians, but he hasn't fought the British since Toulon. So I think actually the problem here is that we get a tea and biscuits Wellington. We get the iron wall that he cannot break. The guy who's going to come in with this, he gets the stick out of the cupboard and gives them a good old thrashing. And that's, that's what we get. And you don't really learn anything about... You'd learn a lot more if he wasn't actually a character in the movie. It takes us back to a point that um, we, we've discussed offline, actually, which is one of the few things that this film actually does manage to do properly, and perhaps is more accident than anything else, is downplay, rightly, the role of the British within the defeat of Napoleon. It's one of the few redeeming features, and I'm looking at Sam as I'm saying this because Sam, this was your um, point. Yeah, it's, 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 one, it's Sam one, first, and then Josh. The, this is one of the few things I do like about the movie and its its structure and its script and its its purpose is the fact that it features the British at Toulon, and then there's that that lovely line about the boats, which we all love, and then for the majority of Napoleon's uh, career, the British just don't feature again at all until until the end and it just really pleases me because it just shows to the anglo-centric wellington adoring union flag shaggers that we were not the be-all and end-all of the napoleonic wars the the peninsula war is fascinating to us and is obviously you know to, to for liberating portugal and spain it's incredibly important to the people involved and that but it was to napoleon it's a sideshow like the main event is the, the the rest of the coalitions it's the people on his doorstep it's not oh look oh look there's wellington over over the other side oh yeah that's great yeah 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 if he was that important he'd have gone and fought him himself 
And so that's why I love the fact that we are just for 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 an Anglo um for an Anglo film, the fact that we then don't feature for most of it, that I like. Yeah, that I, I saw that too. The problem I had was that when the British do show up, they show up big time. And Waterloo becomes another British, we're the ones who put him in the grave kind of thing. Now, we can talk about Waterloo in a different way and the actual like impact of Wellington on the coalitions, which is not small by 1814, but it's nevertheless, they're all British on that stupid ridge behind those stupid barricades. And you get one shot of Blucher. It's, I, I'm going to actually argue that the Prussians get a better, uh, get more, get better screen time in the 1970s movie, because at least then you're cheering for Blucher as he comes on the field. This guy, it's just like, there's some well, old dude. Blucher arrives from the right sodding direction in the 1970s yeah. film. <laughs> Unlike this, but I, I know it's a, a niche point in a film that's littered with so many inaccuracies, but even that is sloppy. Mm -hmm. It's it's so just just have them come in from the right angle, please. It's not it's that all, hard. It's all sloppy, like like Sam was saying, right? If you're going to do Napoleon's life, okay, you can you can do history in an entertaining way, right? It's not a, it's not about education. It's about finding the good stuff to tell the story. The bits you can't do in detail. What on earth are montages for? What on earth are, you know, like vignettes of paintings for? There are literal paintings of him taking the surrender of Madrid when he was in Spain. Just recreate that and a couple of other ones between 1808 and 1809 to do Wagram and all that rot. And then go, you're back in a palace. Bingo. You have a nice bit of music over it, soaring, etc. And you can have a conversation about Spain. It's like, oh, he's lost. Jo my idiot jo brother Joseph has lost the, the throne of Spain. Moron. I need to write him a letter. It, it's... You could have had because you get nothing about why he hates the Bourbons either. That was a big problem for him, diplomatically speaking. That was why he got in trouble in Spain. These can be character arcs, just like battles. Battle scenes, the this everybody treats them like they're just sort of excuses to show violence. You and I'm going to stop myself there actually because that comes back to what movie are you doing? Are you doing Napoleon the Soldier? Are you doing Napoleon the Statesman? And it really should have been one or the other. Already, Josh's dialogue is better than some of the lines that we got in the actual film. Charlie, let me bring you in on this character lack of development. How how do you do this well? Oh, God, I mean, that's the $64 million question. Actually, $64 million would be a bit of a snip. I was just thinking about you know, Josh's point about doing history and doing it well. And you know, what we've said about what we expected from this film wasn't a documentary. We weren't expecting that. But I went into it as someone who knew nothing about Napoleon or really the Napoleonic Wars at all, except they were named after him, so he must have been quite important. And I came out knowing nothing. I didn't learn anything. I don't even know. I don't even have if if we went and did a pub quiz tomorrow, or if there was a round on you know, university challenge. I can't even make an educated guess based on something I've seen in a movie. I've got nothing. There was a fight on the ice and it was cool. Um, <laughs> it was cool on the ice. Um, but I I know nothing about the man at all. 
I took nothing away. How do you do it well? How do you do the character well? I mean, we've 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 touched on this a few times now in this, and it's it's getting down to some kind of micro level and making a decision. And that's what directors are meant to do. That's what you meant. That's what you are there to do when you're making a film. You are meant to make some artistic choices. And we give people a hell of a lot of license. Had a, a brilliant chat a couple of weeks ago with um, Jem Daduchi about his book uh, Hollywood and history is about what movies get wrong and and some of the things they get right we both agreed monty python and the holy grail is possibly the best medieval film ever made no notes but we don't expect we don't expect a lot going in as an audience unless i mean you guys you know you experts obviously are going in there expecting to see a certain number of boxes ticked and things that you know this is for for you if if someone were to say to me look we have given ridley scott 200 million to make a film set in the english civil war i would be beside myself i would be so excited to see that up on the big screen and yeah i would tear it a new one um but it would have been nice to learn something or feel like I've taken something away from it or maybe feel like I was a little bit cleverer when I came out than when I went in. And all I was left with really was, again, being very cold and numb bum and just disappointment that at the very end when the credits started running, that they didn't pump in the Abyssum. That's what I was there for. This is this is a good point. Um, if you want the Abyssum, go to the Waterloo Battlefield. They will amply... Um, provide on that score kit. They the don't. Poised. They don't. Probably do. Uh, no, they don't. Genuinely. Yeah. So recently, um, they've taken it away again. I don't know if this is because it was a set period thing or whether it was de deemed to be in bad taste, but um, they had a sort of elevated restaurant type thing. It's like some crane concoction right by the Lion's Mound. So if you were there at the time that they had this monstrosity, uh, it completely ruined your view of the battlefield because you've got this fucking great crane, basically, in the middle of it. Yeah. And as it lifted you up into the air so that you had your dinner literally suspended from about 20, 30, 40 feet, um, they played ABBA. They played the Waterloo song as they were lifting you up. <laughs> um, baffling. But there you go. What do I know about marketing? In fact, they are now doing an exhibition um, at the museum, all about Abra and Waterloo. Curious. I mean, it, it's a choice. Um, we won't delve into the the rights or the wrongs of that. It's it's a choice. Um, Kit, you looked poised. Well, I yeah, think I, I learned um, more about the Napoleonic Wars from Abra than I did from this film. Yeah, I and and, and I kind of that's one thing that I th there are some things that the film does well. I don't want to say like it was a complete disaster because it is it is one of those so bad it's good, but it's not just a stinker. And one thing I did like was that, you know, as someone who's coming out, at, not from inside this period, there are certain lines that I was expecting. I was expecting not tonight, Josephine. I was expecting, you know, someone's met his Waterloo. I was expecting whiff of grape shot. There, that none of that comes out. That isn't what this movie is. It does try and take itself seriously. And I think that there's this if there was if there is a theme at all, it's this idea of of class war. You know, the tagline he came from nothing. Um, you know, he, I know I, I know you're sort of rolling your eyes at that because he didn't. Um, but this idea that um, that that was the ideals of the revolution, 
And the idea was that anyone could suddenly be equal and know these nasty poshos just keep preventing him from being uh, anything close to that. Um, is certainly kind of overplayed and overdone, but there is something interesting there. They're trying to take, they're trying to make a point about Napoleon's life rather than just showing you the spectacle. Um, and for me, actually, my favourite scene in the movie, which we we kind of haven't mentioned, is is not the after Elba scene. It's the arriving on Elba scene, where he arrives on Elba with a load of ragtag old guard who have been around Europe. They are beating this drum there. Their flags are tattered. Children are laughing at him in the street. You know, it's a mama's parade of Napoleon. And I thought that was actually one of the best scenes in the film. That's a really beautifully timed segue because I was thinking we need to start getting some positives in and we were going to do a discussion about costume design. But before we get that, get to that rather, I want to actually go around the rest of you and ask what were your favourite scenes out of this or or moments or, or just something that you liked out of it. Uh, Chai, do you want to start off? Oh, it was the, the coronation scene for me. I. I loved that. I thought it was beautiful. I thought how it was set up was gorgeous. And um, the fact that they even had that lovely little nod to a guy painting it while it was while it was going on. That was tick, tick, tick. Thank you. Josh, what about you? Uh, I, I think that there were little islands of good in terms of the scenes in between it all. There were sections where, you, where I was thinking to myself, if only the rest of the movie was like this, you know, if it had that quality to it. And the coronation scene was one of them. Actually, one of my favourite scenes, which is surprising because I didn't like the scene before it, particularly with the ninja Cossacks, but the um, the burning of Moscow is very impressive. Uh, like the entrance to Moscow and the burning of Moscow is very impressive. Yeah, there's a really weird scene where he wanders through the empty Kremlin, which is looking a little bit like a dustbin site for some reason, but nevertheless he's wandering through it and he's singing in a little sing-song voice, where are you little boy? And yeah, the bird poop bit kind of ruined that a little bit, but <laughs> um, that was actually really interesting. That, that, that was the kind of epic I was expecting. I was expecting them to expand stuff like that and actually that tied in really well you know when he when he steps outside and you talks to the anonymous marshals later on you find out one of them is flipping Bertier um but you don't know who it is at the time um and he th and he stares at he stares in just awe at the burning city in front of him and he, and he says I didn't think he had the courage and that ties in very well in terms of script when which is slightly ruined by the fact that they put it in when the Tsar visits Josephine for some reason, but he says to her, I know what it's like to be underestimated. That's a connection there. The whole arc of the Tsar and Napoleon is one of the most interesting sort of parts of the movie as far as I'm concerned. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it was probably the burning of Moscow scene I thought was pretty well done. Sam, what about you? I also really loved the coronation, but I'm going to sound like a massive psychopath now. My favourite thing was watching the British ships burn at Toulon. <laughs> it was just really beautiful watching all the British ships burn. <laughs> but if you if you then 
on a on a on a cinematic and beauty scale if you remove any semblance of any kind of history i did like the battle scenes all of them as imagery if you just remove every semblance of what you wanted to see from them as some kind of story of napoleon like napoleon doing cavalry charges and stuff it's all bullshit but actually as a as this this wine and cheese dream version of napoleon they were beautiful to watch Okay, let's dwell on another positive. Um, I'm not going to be sort of button county on this. Sure, there will have been issues and inconsistencies and errors within them, but the costumes for me were one of the big takeaways as part of that bigger visual spectacle. The thing that Ridley perhaps has a particularly strong reputation for is that visual spectacle in film. And on that, he unquestionably delivered. Obviously, he had help in the form of the big paintings, but God, did he get it right in terms of, so that's what the still looks like. How do we make that image move? And if you, this is why I say that actually, if you turn the volume off on this film, I genuinely think it improves it by a significant margin because then you don't have the dumbness. You don't have pig grunt sex. You don't have... Um, the stupid line about the bloody boats, you have instead a visual spectacle that you you can create your own dialogue. You know, we can we can get Josh in to dub over the top a better dialogue. That's that's a project that we should perhaps make happen, you know? And then you perhaps get much more of a feel because you're focused purely on what you have in front of you, which is the visuals. And I think that works well. I also like that there are moments where you have to think, whether particularly Von Domier, um, the 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 coup as well, the Brumaire coup. There are moments where you have to sort of look at the character and go, um, that's not quite what I expected. It doesn't fit the classic Hollywood depiction, right? Here you've got your hero who is turning around artillery and firing on the crowd. Now, yes, we all know about the historical failings of that and and the issues and the fact that napoleon wasn't quite as integral as everyone likes to pretend um we also know or in fact actually the brumaire coup is one of the more honest one of the things that's more honest to the history and there are moments where you have to look at the guy and go well sometimes he was a bit of a prat wasn't he um and other times he was he was a bit of an asshole um there are some things that i felt weren't perhaps necessary as well slapping josephine i don't see how that advanced the cause of the film um i didn't really get the point of that i thought that was just gratuitous but that that imagery and those moments where you had to think for me they were positives and i just want to spend some time thinking about the the effort that went into that because we, we're doing a lot of tearing apart the historical inaccuracy for very obvious reasons but there is a sub level to historical accuracy which is you've got to get the look right you know and that they did right so i just want to kind of pause on and think about that for a minute and sam i'm going to come to you first based on your work because you've worked as an extra on films so you know some of the behind the scenes stuff that most of us don't have an insight into so how does that work in terms of getting everybody literally everybody to look the part 
I, 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 I can tell from from photographs I've seen of extras uh, when they were playing soldiers that they did put a lot of effort into every unique soldier, even though they're just going to be a blur on screen. Every single soldier did look pretty accurate in their uniforms, and that was that that was fantastic. Although one <laughs> on a little side note on extras, one of my favourite bits of the film is in the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> right very near the front of the screen um so he's close enough that he's not blurred there's there's lines of british troops and wellington's going up and down his horse giving them a speech and everyone's facing wellington apart from this one extra who's looking left and right with a grin on his face and then everyone starts cheering and then he goes oh shit everyone's cheering and starts cheering and then everyone puts their fists down and he goes oh shit everyone stop cheering and then he's just grinning away to himself and he's close enough to the front that he's not blurred and on the big screen you can see it but i just clearly by that point the director was like fuck it I don't care anymore. <laughs> but yeah, all the troops, all the troops were wearing um, proper uniforms, and actually, a lot of the a lot of the soldier extras were ex forces as well. We're, we're not talking the same kind of um, scale as as the Battle of Waterloo film, where they have all the Russian army playing soldiers and they're all impeccably trained. But a lot of the extras were military trained, um, and, and enough of them to then keep the non military trained one in line. Uh, in line. And that apparently, um, based off of uh, an extra having said this, the Battle of Waterloo scene where they all stupidly get out of their trenches and then get into squares, that was done on the first take correctly. All of them just magically listened to their instructions and just magically did it right first time. The forming of the squares I thought was done impressively. The concept that you're facing a cavalry charge, so you're going to get out of this trench that shouldn't even be there in the first place, but hey, never mind, let's just Hollywood everything. You're going to get out of your trench, the safety, because how the hell is this cavalryman going to reach you from horseback with his sabre, which is only a yard of steel? What's he going to do? Get off his horse and come stab you in your trench. So why the hell would you get out of your trench, charge forwards and then form square? dumb as you could possibly imagine there's a whole issue with consistency and logic in this entire film when it comes to battle scenes but the actual we're forming square boys that looks nice so marks there mm, exactly and the um even in the the, the non-military scenes the uh the the party the survivors ball uh rumor is that none of the extras were allowed to wear thermals for that even though they were filming it in the dead of night in a very cold night so even though you weren't going to see it on screen because they were going to be slightly blurred extras like Ridley Scott did want that level of authenticity that no these people who are scantily clad at uh that at this ball they're not going to be allowed thermals just in case they poke out Here, let me bring you in on the imagery here because I mean you you helped us to segue into this. This yeah. is something that that works well. It, it is, and to go, to, I mean, I'll tell you one of the highest compliments I can, I can give is is likening it to to another movie where I was thinking about the drawing room scenes in particular, the wonderful candlelight, and it reminded me of Barry Lyndon um, and the way that you had these these sort of you know Kubrick. In, found a new way essentially of shooting film that allowed him to shoot by candlelight and you have this lovely orange glow where people are, are discussing politics over games of whist uh, and whatnot um 
absolutely just it's a it's a feast for the eyes and that i think is sumptuous um the there are certain parts as well we talked about this very brief battle uh, battle sequence with the prussians like you know blinking you'll miss it but the idea of the prussian army marching and off they go into the distance and they've got they're only five miles away but they actually need to form up uh, you know, as an army, um, I thought that was really, really nice. Um, and so you do have these these wonderful little flecks. There is no doubt that Ridley Scott is a spectacle filmmaker. Um, and if you give him, you know, I want this painting, he can create it and make it sing for you. Um, but again, going back to previous films, I'm always reminded that his first film was The Duelists. And The Duelists is, I mean, everyone's nodding there probably like everyone's favorite napoleon movie unless you like master and commander you know yeah i mean there's there's another point that we haven't really explored isn't there in terms of martian we we talked about this earlier on this idea that because yeah. i mean i mean you know the science behind this i thought most of the science behind it was was crap and i just loved the i, I will freely admit it's a film that can make me cry at the point at which a certain thing happens, which I won't say because I'm not going to drop a spoiler about another film in a, a, a podcast where we've absolutely destroyed and ruined um, a, a different Ridley Scott film. But that's that's what's irritating, that he can do emotion. And from what you've told me, actually, he can do accuracy as well. Yeah, he, he can. So um, I think the key thing with Ridley Scott is you have to give him a decent script. So um, infamously, Gladiator was shot without a script and, it, and Russell Crowe was basically working his backside off to make it even a semblance of a good movie. Um, in the cases where he has got a script written that is absolutely fantastic, a killer script, things like Alien, things like Blade Runner, um, The Martian we mentioned because Andy Weir, who wrote the novel, strived for scientific accuracy. And so when we're looking at the orbital mechanics, they're accurate. In fact, the most inaccurate thing in The Martian is that there is a dust storm on Mars because you couldn't get that. But his recipe for how you would stay alive, basically, what ways you'd be able to communicate with NASA, it's it's bang on. It's absolutely correct. Um, how the processes would work, who's liaising with who, everything's fantastic. Uh, another Ridley Scott movie that sort of nails that kind of authenticity and that accuracy is, um, and, and again, not as well, it should be emphasised, but Black Hawk Down has some fantastic moments in there. There are some moments in Black Hawk Down that just didn't happen, let's be honest. Um, but you get this 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 sense that someone's done some research here. Um, and I don't get the sense of that when I watch... I watch this movie and I look at his previous record of, of sort of historical epics. Um, you know, you've got 1492 Conquest of Paradise. Uh, you've got Exodus, Gods and Kings, um, even something like House of Gucci, um, which which is now infamous uh, online for this this cut that he decided to do where Jared Leto opens up his mouth to give a wail and it goes into a car horn and it sounds like he's going ah as he wails in a church. Um, I mean... We have to bear in mind, it feels like Ridley Scott's just kind of given up at a certain point, um, I think. Um, and I keep I keep thinking about what, what would have happened if Tony Scott had done this movie? Um, you know, I think we might have had a, a less accurate in terms of costume and, and things like that. But in terms of, of sense of drama and tension and spectacle, I think he might have had a much, uh, much tighter product. Yeah, and actually the criticisms would be much more rivet countery, right? um and that would be a, a moment when we would have to actually genuinely 
consider whether we need to get a life because there is this point that there, there is a of course there's a cut off where you have to make that but let's let's not get dragged into that positives let's stay with positives josh give me positives it, it is absolutely um visually very impressive that's one of the things that i i said uh about it when it came out the 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 music's pretty good and it is especially for the central characters napoleon's all the napoleon's uniforms really impressive um and like uh sam was saying even down to the fact that people may not even get on the screen they cared about the atmosphere um certainly in terms of the background and stuff because i'm going to use for, uh, for instance here when the i think it's a messenger goes into what is presumably meant to be the Tuileries um, of Versailles to tell Louis XVIII that Napoleon is back. And by the way, why is Louis XVIII even in this movie? Why was he even cast for that scene? But nevertheless, um, the joke is he's fat. Anyway, the <laughs> that's why he's in this movie. Um, but when they ride in, who's who is escorting it? Those those uniforms have been researched at the Musée d'Armée. Those uniforms of those horsemen escorting the coach, um, which you briefly even saw in the 1970s movie, are the uh, Musketeers de la Garde. They're the, they're the musketeers. And I have great respect for people who take that amount of care about material culture. Um, and it and it it banishes the rivet counters. I mean, because I don't like to criticize uniforms terribly when it comes to movies, to be honest. Um, because so long as the story is good, it doesn't really matter. And this one, in a weird way, this is what we have to hang our hats on. This is what we can say. Yes, that's pretty much what it looked like. Uh, <laughs> um, that is one of the big positives about it. I think it's also partly why we're nonplussed by the whole thing, right? Mm. The things that we expected to be wrong were right, and the things we expected to be right were wrong. And yeah. and I think our brains perhaps can't compute, and we would have rather that it was the other way around. That would have been easier and, I think, better. Charlie, let me get your take on positives. Well, I mean, it employed a hell of a lot of people in the industry, um, and that's not to be sniffed at. So... Ridley Scott was always going to make this movie. Uh, Kit brought up The Duelists. He's got a passion for the era. And if if you've listened to him talk about this film at all, and I've listened to a few interviews with him in preparation to come and, and chat to you guys, in every single interview, he's talking about the history. I don't want to hear Ridley Scott being a historian. I want to hear what you guys can tell me about Napoleon. I want to hear Ridley Scott tell me about how he filmed it and why he filmed it and what he's done and the choices. The very telling things for me are the fact that this was originally with 20th Century uh, Studios and they dropped it when their contract with Ridley Scott ran out and Apple TV picked it up or Apple Plus or whatever they're calling themselves this week. It'll change. Um, at the moment, they are pumping huge amounts of money into big name filmmakers and giving them a ridiculous budget as much runtime as they want and they can make whatever they want. That's why we ended up with Killers of the Flower Moon um, from Scorsese. Uh, again, looks beautiful. Eh, it's okay. Didn't hate it. I'm glad, glad I saw it on the big screen. Not really worth watching again on a small screen. So what, are we talking like 200 million? It 
is silly amounts of money. Ridley Scott talked about having about 900 members of crew. That's crew. And he had several different units filming things. And he said that when he was filming it, he was running it almost like a board meeting. So he's got all these heads of different units coming in and he's farming it all out. And there's a lot of people working on this. So as someone who um, is interested in creative industry, that is a huge, huge plus. Now, all those costumes, I mean, for you guys, this is the exciting moment for you. So Ridley Scott and all, all of his pedantry and getting everything right, thank him. Thank him until you go blue in the face because thank him, thank Apple's money because all these costumes now exist. They're all there in the world. And this means that there will be more Napoleonic content coming for you. And as it gets used more and more, the cost of this stuff will come down and you'll get some really interesting things happening. There'll be some um, there'll be some crap. Of course, there will be. But there might be a, there might be a film that will come out and it will blow your mind and you'll be so happy. and It'll be the film that you wish that they'd made in this case. I love that you brought up Louis XVIII because I, I was saying to Chris afterwards, if you did not know. And I mean, like I said, I don't know anything about this time, but I've got just a tiny, tiny bit of working knowledge for French royals because, you know, um, I'm very much on the side of no the nobility. As you know, my head's coming right off. Um, if you didn't know that they brought back the monarchy, you'd be like, I mean, because they're all called Louis. I don't know. There's a, oh, and he's gone. It just shows you the lack of time and respect that they gave to the French monarchy when they were putting this story together, that the IMDb listings for Marie Antoinette and her two children, her two children are listed as Marie Antoinette kid number one and Marie Antoinette kid number two. So that, I think that tells you all you need to know. But so positives, lots and lots of positives come out of this. We've seen this movie. It's done. It's next week's chip wrapper. Let's look forward to what's coming next. One quick thing before we talk about the final point, the actors. I just want to take a moment to think about what Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby had to do. You know, somebody turned around to Joaquin Phoenix and said, in this scene, I want you to whine at Josephine, Vanessa, like a dog until she agrees to give you what you're after because you're a randy bastard and he he did his best with it um he played it in such a way that everybody kind of sat there and curled up into a ball and cringed so hard that it probably took us a few moments to unclench ourselves when the scene was over they did their best with what got put in front of them are there things that and I'm I'm interested in in the level of control that an actor has. It was striking that in the interviews before Phoenix was saying that he didn't really know how to play Napoleon, and then he and Ridley sat down for something like a whole eight hours straight or something and, and went through the entire thing blow by blow. Is there anything that you feel should have been done differently? I'm going to stay with Charlie first of all for this one. Well, it does sound like the actor's got a certain amount of freedom to to improvise, hence the um, the beautiful uh, pig lovemaking scene, which I know See, is going to go I down. I am very curious about, apologies for interrupting you there, I'm very curious about this. Um, yeah. If any of our listeners 
feel that we've misjudged this and actually pig grunting is is an effective means of seduction i would be curious to hear from you though i'm not entirely sure i'd agree with your methods um look zach you can't go kink shaming people that's this you is know, fair but i did people are wonder... into what they're into and it's all all sort of yeah it's all good no i think i think they had it's always a really interesting question as to how much freedom actors are really given how much they they say they're given afterwards or whether it was actually given or whether they were I don't really know without without being there. Um, I think that they did work with what they'd got, and I don't think the the script was strong. Um, I I think that the all the effort went into those set pieces, and the actual dialogue and characterization was just meh. Not. I think they did their best. They did their best. God love them. I hope nobody gets nominated for an acting Oscar because I don't think the script was strong enough to warrant it. I but. agree with that. My hope was that actually this might be um, an Oscar-worthy performance from Vanessa Kirby, because as we've talked about yeah. before, the trailers seemed to promise that. You know, there were individual lines that made you think, wow, and she delivered some of those lines. Um, but the context within which those lines sat just meant that the the moments didn't flourish in the way that it was promised. Sam, let me That's your... the frustrating thing, because... Sorry. No, carry on, Charlie. I was just going to say, because they they described Vanessa Kirby as being the standout performance of the film. And she was. That's completely fair. But she didn't have very far to go to stand out. Sam, let me get your thoughts on this. I completely agree with what Charlie just said. I, I loved Vanessa Kirby's Josephine. I really, really loved it. But because coming back to that critique I gave earlier about the length of scenes, within those scenes, she doesn't have the space to develop and to be a, a, a presence. So she's she's a fantastic Josephine, and I love her Josephine so much. But there's just there's very there's very strong confines over what she's able to do. And for all the criticism I've given so far, I like I, I, I like Phoenix as napoleon he was a good choice for napoleon post coronation napoleon he, he he was not he was not right to be playing uh a slightly gawky gangly 27 year old who's fresh out of a victory at toulon who's suddenly got a bit big for his boots and is shipped off to italy and then spain he's he's not it, no amount of blue filter that makes it look like you're watching something through a dense fog with fog lights on is going to save the wrinkles around his face. And then the fact that he is not, he's, he's, he's a 50 something year old man playing a 26 year old. And they wouldn't have done that the other way around. They wouldn't have got a 56 year old woman to be playing Josephine. And that, that kind of annoys me as well. Yeah, anything you want to add on this, particularly in terms of better choices that might have been made in terms of casting? I know a lot was made about the inversion of the age difference. Um, in reality, of course, Josephine, something like five or six years older. Um, I forget how old Vanessa Kirby is, but somewhere in her 20s? No, she's in her 30s. So, okay, so bizarre, 30s. bizarrely, Vanessa Kirby and I go back. Um, I, I do know Vanessa Kirby in a, in a really weird way, um, which which I'm not going to go into here. Um, 
anyway, our paths have crossed anyway. Um, in a very pleasant way, I, you know, nothing, nothing bad. Um, I think one thing I would say I that I liked was the colorblind casting. Um, so that we're actually seeing that there were people who weren't white uh, in Europe and in France at that time, because there were, um, you know, the fact that Napoleon is Corsican from an Italian family um, and, uh, and and such. So uh, I think that that's a, that's a real strong point and a real, and a real credit for, for how the, the casting is. Um, I don't want to sort of go into into kind of fantasy casting because every time I do it, I can I can just go on for hours and sort of you know who would I want to be, uh, you know, name a marshal and you know who would be who would be Davout and who would be uh, you know the Bernadots and all you know whatever. Um, you can do that for for hours, and I'm sure you can, you probably can get another podcast out of it. Um, I think overall, my main concern is is this is is the lack of script. Uh, as I say, everything was there for a fantastic movie. There was sumptuous costumes. There was beautiful shots. There was great set design. Um, yeah, okay, the battles. Of course, anyone who even knows anything slightly about you know this period, you know, Water Waterloo. Um, I mean, there's that giant hill there with the lion uh, on top of it. I mean, why aren't they? Why don't they have that? Um, I'm joking, of course, but they are missing, you know, Lahey Sain and they are missing um, Hugamon and and all that. Um, so there are clear clear problems, but the, the issue for me is, is the script. And also, unless you are a, a particular class of actor who is an expert in ad-libbing and coming up with your own lines, just stick to what's written down and don't do the weird pig noises, man. It ain't, it ain't a good look. Which brings us to... I think a, a good point at which to start wrapping this up. We won't go into another three hours on did the history need to be that bad. If you haven't picked up on our views on the the history, then sorry, folks, you're going to have to wait for that for a, another time. Quite frankly, because I think this this has been a, a neat conversation based around the actual art of not making a historical film so much as just making a decent film. Just closing thoughts. What would you give it out of 10? And what is your devastating one-line takedown of the Napoleon movie? Or alternatively, how would you come up with a one-line to describe this in a positive light? Um, Josh, I'm going to come to you first. Hmm. Okay. Out of out of five stars. Ah. Uh... Two. I would give it a two for sound production and uh, costumes. I think those people should get a round of applause. Um, it's. Uh... Is that your devastating one line takedown? Just a, an silence. exasperated <laughs> sigh. Um. My devastating takedown is is unfortunately fairly unoriginal, and it's probably something along the lines of um, a, a a tremendous missed opportunity. Okay, Charlie. Okay, I would. I don't like to do star ratings because I think they're reductive, and I think everyone should see everything 
in the cinema where it's intended to be seen. But my review would be, yeah, mic drop. My review would be Ridley Scott's Napoleon, a spectacular exploration of what happens when you tell your reviewing audience to fuck off. I love it. I love it. Sam? So I'm actually going to go a bit higher than you'd probably think I would. And I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to go with a 5 out of 10 because I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I mean, that's probably the most positive thing I can say is I didn't hate it. Um, I used all of my uh, sassy tantrum lines at the opening (laughs) of this episode. Uh, So I will probably just use a summary of those, in which case it is a uh, nonsensical uh, blur of someone's wine and cheese filled dream of Napoleon uh, told through the perspective of someone with cataracts. Oh, the cataracts thing is new. Uh, I like that. Uh, told through the perspective of someone with cataracts. Um, and last, but by no means least, that's a tough one to top. Kit, if anybody's up to the challenge, you are. Okay, um, bear in mind that there is a four-hour version that we haven't seen. And that might, I mean, Kingdom of Heaven's longer version totally changes the film. So, you know, we don't know yet. Um, I would say, however... It's the most most fun I've had at a cinema in ages because I was just laughing the entire time. It wasn't intentional fun, but um, but I had a great time. So, right taglines. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you two to see if I can just up up um, Sam's. So, someone paid two hundred million for carry on boning your part, or destiny has brought me to this pork chop of a movie. Wow. Well, that is a stunning point on which to end. Kit drops the mic. Folks, you've been listening to some of my favourite good eggs of a bunch of people um, that I'm I'm very privileged to have on this show in the past. Uh, A reminder, you've been listening to Dr Kit Chapman, science historian, journalist, lecturer and author of Super Heavy, Making and Breaking the Periodic Table and Racing Green, How Motorsport Science can save the world. You've also heard Sam Jolly, curator at the Royal Logistics Corps Museum at Worthy Down near Winchester and trustee of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity. You've heard Charlie White, an expert in film history and a passionate devotee of Stuart history. And last but by no means least, Josh Proven, master of the Adventures in History Land YouTube channel and author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira and Every Hazard and Fatigue. Folks, you've been an absolute joy. Thank you for enabling us all to laugh at the um, the 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 whatever that was that we saw. Um, I hope to see you again very soon. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It is the single most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience. I kid you not. One review can have the impact of the show being up in the top 100s um, charts for history podcasts for days after you leave it. So if you can spare the time, it would be hugely appreciated. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, 
Jim Getz, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducado, James Fluek, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morhan. The Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, J.C. Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Laird Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walkham, Steve Carter, Clemens, and Charles McKay. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.